You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. So right away, I want you to notice here in Psalm 61 where it starts and where it ends. So take a look there first at verse 1. Read verse 1 again. David starts, Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth, I call to you when my heart is faint. This is how Psalm 61 starts. Now look at the last verse for a minute. Verse 8. Verse 8. So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. This is where Psalm 61 ends. We can see here very easily where it starts and where it ends. These are two very different places. Where it starts here in verses 1 and 2 is a place far away from God, right here, verses 1 and 2. And then where it ends here in verse 8 is a place of constant praise in the, in the presence of God. And what's in between these two verses is a movement, a movement from this place to this place. In Psalm 61, there's a movement from painful distance from God to a pervasive devotion to God. Painful distance to pervasive devotion. And the question is, how do we get there? How do we get from here to here? You guys get the question? In Psalm 61, how do we get from distance to devotion? That's what we're going to look at this morning in this psalm. And I want to show you here in this psalm three steps that move us from here to here. Three steps that move us from distance to devotion. And they go like this. First is desire a change. Second is remember that God is for you. And then third is hope in the Messiah. Desire change, remember God is for you, and then hope in the Messiah. What we're going to do in this sermon is just look at each of these three steps. But before we get started, let's pray again and ask for God's help. Father in heaven, the Lord Jesus taught us that it is your good pleasure to give us the kingdom. It's your good pleasure. You are delighted, delighted to give us the kingdom. And because that's true, we ask now with confidence that by your spirit, we ask you shine the light of your word into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the question is how we move from this distance here in verses one and two to the devotion we see in verse eight. The first step is that we desire a change. This is verses one and two, and this first step is implicit in these verses, but when we slow down, I think it becomes a little more obvious to us. David here is desperate for God to hear him. He recognizes that he's in a bad place, and he's praying to God from that place. He's calling out from the end of the earth with a faint heart. That's what he says in verse two, and I think when he says this, he's speaking metaphorically here. I don't, I don't think David literally has traveled to a faraway land. According to what we know about David's life, he's not geographically a long ways from where he's been before. But circumstantially, 
He is a long ways from where he wants to be. Remember that David has been running for his life from Saul who wants to kill him. He's faced the constant threat of his enemies. Everything seems up in the air. Nothing is settled. He has what God has said, the promise that God has given him, and yet his experience doesn't seem to line up. And so for David, there is some type of foggy barrier that he has here in his relationship to God. There's a fog that he's in, and I think this idea of fog is a a helpful way to think about it because the thing with fog is that it doesn't actually move you anywhere. Fog doesn't move you anywhere. It just distorts your perception of where you are. Make sense? I don't know what it was like for you guys this past week, but Monday this past week, it was a super foggy morning for us. And I was driving east, driving the kids to school like I do every morning this time of year. And, you know, we're driving to school, and the kids' school is not any farther away than it usually is, right? The the school hasn't moved at all. But as we're driving to school, it felt like the school was so far away. We couldn't see where we were going. We're driving super, super slow, couldn't see where we were going, and it was kind of a surreal experience. Because you know what it's like in the fog. When you're in the fog, everything can seem to be at a difference. The only thing you can see when it's foggy is kind of like what's, depending on how foggy it is, if it's really foggy, you can only see stuff this close to you, right? You can only see things in your immediate surroundings. And when you look out from that place, when you look out from being in the fog, it feels like you're looking out from the end of the earth. It can feel like when you're standing in the fog that you are standing on the edge of the planet and everything is blurry. That's where David's at here. He he feels far away from God. The fog has, in a sense, hidden God from him. The fog has made his perception of God blurry. The the fog has at least created the illusion of distance. David looks to God, he looks to God, but he just sees fog. And we need to start here because there's really nothing else in Psalm 61 that's going to make a lot of sense to us unless we know something of what this is like. We have to know a little bit about what this fog is. And I think we do. I think we know what fog like this is like. Maybe, we've not, maybe we wouldn't articulate it the way that David does here, but sometimes, I'm asking you now, I'm asking you, do you ever feel off? Anybody? Sometimes you just feel off. Does it ever seem like for you that God doesn't hear your prayers? And partly, he doesn't hear your prayers because you don't know what to pray. You, you just, you come to God and your prayers feel flat. You ever felt that way? Sometimes you feel like you're praying and they're just like bouncing off the ceiling or something. Your, your, your grasp of the gospel seems stale, even in your attempt, in those moments, your attempts to repeat in your mind the things that you know, it falls short. Like, you, 
Your grasp is, is you, can't, you can't seem to remember the things that, that you know, you know. Even scripture that you've memorized. You try to recall verses and passages that you have memorized and recited and you know, but when you try to recall, they just don't come up. And you can think for a minute, you wonder, have I forgotten all of them? Like maybe you, maybe I've forgotten every verse of scripture I've ever memorized. You try to read the Bible. You go to the Bible. You open the Bible and you say, I'm just going to read what the Word says. And you read it and it just doesn't make sense to you. Like you're reading the Word, but you just feel stuck and there's a haze. You ever been there? It's, It's one of those things where you, you feel you're in this fog and say, you know, it's, it's, it's your, you know, this is my favorite example. You're, you're, you're driving down the road and you come to a traffic light and, you know, the light's red, the light turns green, but the car in front of you stalls, turning left. And so when it's your turn to turn, the light's already turned red again and you can't turn. And when that happens, you question the purpose of life, right? <laughs> You remember that? I'm talking about moments like that when you just feel off. Moments like that. When you feel far away, you just feel far away. And everything just seems stupid. I've heard of people being in situations like that, <laughs> feeling that way. You've been there. We've, we've all been there. We've all been in situations like this, and before there can be any kind of change, before there can be any kind of change in our lives, we have to first recognize where we are and recognize that we don't like it. We don't want to be there. We don't want to feel that way or think that way about traffic lights. You have to recognize first that you're in a place you don't want to be, which is what I think David is doing here most obviously beneath verses one and two. He doesn't like where he is at the end of the earth, which is why he prays. And this is why we should pray. We should pray like David does. From however distant you might feel, you are never too distant to ask God for help. Now, the fog will suggest something different to you. But remember, the fog is an illusion. You can pray, church. You can desire things to change, and you can bring all of that to God. See, the biggest problem in the fog, the biggest problem is apathy. It's not being at a place you don't want to be. It's being at a place that's not good and being okay with it. It's being comfortable in the fog, and it's choosing to stay in the fog. But we're saying no to that. We're saying no to that, and we're bringing it to God. We're bringing where we are to God. We're bringing it to Him. We're crying out to God like David does here. That has to be the first step. We have to desire a change. Going from here to here, first desire a change. And then secondly, remember that God is for you. This is verses two and three, and it's almost like just the other side of the coin. Desiring change is one side, 
And then remembering and knowing that God is for you is the other side. And we see this right away at the end of verse 2 and in verse 3. David cries out from the end of the earth with a faint heart, but he says this, lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge a strong tower against the enemy. This reminds us that while David perhaps felt estranged from God, God was not a stranger to him, nor he to God. There's a covenant relationship here. God has revealed himself to David. David has responded in faith, and David has never been disappointed by God. There's a story of faithfulness behind his prayer. God has been his refuge. God has been his strong tower against the enemy. And because that is true, and because David remembers that, it explains why he asked God here to lead him to this place of higher ground. That's what he's asking. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. He's praying, lead me to the rock whose elevation is above the fog, out of the fray. That's why David wants to go there. And he's not looking to himself here. He's not looking to any strategies that he can muster up. He looks to God who is outside of him and bigger than him and for him. And this is exactly what we should do. When we find ourselves in hard circumstances. But here's the thing. Too often, we don't do this. Think with me for a few minutes here, okay? Why is it that many times, if not most of the time, we make prayer a last resort instead of a first step? Why don't we go to God right away rather than only going to God after we've tried everything else? Why do we do that? This is, a, this is a real question in this moment that we all need to answer for ourselves. Why don't you ask God for help more than you do about more things in your life? So imagine for a minute, I need you to work with me here. Use your imagination and imagine a pie chart. Everybody know what a pie chart is, a big circle? I want you to hold in your mind an image of a pie chart. And this pie chart that you have now in your minds, this pie chart is your life, okay? Everybody see the pie chart? This pie chart is your life. Now I, I want you to think, How much of that pie, which is your life, how much of that pie do you actually pray about? Maybe a slice? Maybe a big slice? Are you seeing your pie? Are you thinking about it? Maybe half the pie? How much of the pie, how much do you actually pray about? And now if you're thinking about your pie, if you're seeing your pie, question, why don't you pray about more? Or second question, you see your pie, 
why don't you pray about the whole thing? Well, the reason, as best as I can tell, is either one of two things. The parts of your pie, of your life, the parts that you don't pray about is either because you think you can handle it yourself or you think God doesn't care about it. One of those two things. You, you don't go to God about these things because either you believe that it's part of your life within your reach of handling or you think it's something too small and insignificant for God to be concerned about. You get the two options? You guys tracking with that? How are we doing with that? We got it? One, one of those two. I'll give you an example here, okay? And this is a parenting example, so bear with me, all right? Uh, Say you're trying to get the kids tucked into bed at night, and on this particular night, the kids, they just won't settle down, you know? And so what you do is you try try to tuck them in, they're not settling down, and so you instantly start running through different tactics of things that you can do to help the kids to settle down. And you think, maybe I need to try this, or what if I did that? Or if the kids are older, you're like, I need to give them some melatonin. And then you're like, how much melatonin again can I give these kids? And you go and you read the directions and you're like, nah, nah, they got maybe more than that. And you, you know, you, we, we exhaust every option within our power. We do whatever we can do to try to get these kids to settle down. And maybe, if none of those things works, maybe you feel like you just gotta get stern. Lay down the law, you know. Which I do find that, um, I do feel like, this is real quick, I do feel like that can be a little bit confusing for kids. And I say this as a dad who's been there a few times. But, you know, because what happens is the first like three or four times, you're like, sweetie, you gotta go to bed. (laughs) You gotta settle in, sweet dreams. And then it's like all of a sudden out of nowhere, you know, you're like, go to bed, you know. And the kids are confused. You know what, you just, what it is in those moments, you just try everything. You go through everything that you can think of. What can I do to help these kids to settle down, to help these kids go to bed? You do all of those things. What are all of those things until they work? Because in that situation, our first instinct is to exhaust every available option within our reach. Our first instinct is not to pray. And we don't pray in those moments because we don't think we need to. We got it, I'll just try this, and then this, and then this. Or maybe, and I think this is probably more likely, the whole thing of putting your kids to bed, it just feels so small and so insignificant that we feel like subconsciously to pray about this would just be a bother to God. With everything else going on in the world, it it feels selfish of us to ask God to help our kids and us get a good night of sleep. It's not. That's just not true. Because in those places, see, we live there. Those are the places that we live. 
And if you think that you don't need God there, or if you think that God doesn't care about those things, then you are living something less than the Christian life. It means that we've lost contact with the realness of Jesus. It means that we are underselling what it means to have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. Right? Do you know the access to power that we have, Christians? And we don't pray. See, what if right away, what if when the kids don't settle down and insert whatever applies to you, what if when the kids don't settle down, what if right away you go to God? What if right away you just go to God and you say, God, help me, help me, help the kids to settle down and get good sleep. Help me not to lose my head. Help me, God, help me. I'm looking to you. I need your help. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. See, we can pray that way. We can pray that way because when God saved you, He saved the whole pie. You get that? There is not a single slice of your pie where you do not need him and that he does not care about. Do we know that? Do we know that? That's the truth. That's what it means to live in Christ, to belong to God. Like David, we have to remember that God is for us. And as soon as we're in the fog, when we are in the place we don't want to be, we run to him. We run to him because, verse 3, he is your refuge. He is your strong tower. In verse 3, I think these two images here of a, a refuge and a strong tower, I think they're important. And I think their differences, their differences are important. Now, in general, when we think of a refuge and a tower, they do the same thing, right? They have the same function in that both a refuge and a tower protect you. They protect us. They guard you from harm that would otherwise overcome you. And God is both of those for us. He's both a refuge and a tower. God guards us ultimately from everlasting harm and he guards us from every harm in between that does not lead to our everlasting good. A refuge and a tower both do that, but they do that differently. And I want us to think about that. How is a refuge and a tower different? Well, a refuge is a condition more than it's an actual place. A refuge is really anything that shelters you, right? So if a tornado's coming, your basement becomes a refuge. Or if you're outside, like a, a, a ditch or something becomes a refuge. Or say if you're hiking up a mountain, like Max and Abby are doing, I think about these guys are, are hikers, you're, you're hiking up a mountain, right? And say a storm comes, you're hiking, the storm comes, a refuge then might be, in the words of our favorite commentator, the aloof ruggedness of a high crag. That's Derek Kidner. 
Pastor David mentioned him last week. What he's saying is, in other words, is this. When you're on a mountain, you're hiking up a mountain, and a storm comes, what you do is you just find the nearest cleft in a rock. You just go anywhere you can take cover. That seems to be what's in David's mind here, which recalls the biblical scene of Exodus 33 when Yahweh shielded Moses from his glory by hiding Moses in the cleft of the rock. You guys remember that? Basically, a refuge is the closest place you can take cover. That's a refuge. But a tower is different because a tower is a structure that has been built for the purpose of protection. A tower accomplishes the same thing as a refuge in that it it protects, but a tower is an intentional building that's been designed and engineered and constructed with the goal of protection in mind. It's not a hiding place in a rock, but a tower is an intricate facility. So a refuge is good for one of those like unexpected storms that might just suddenly come upon you and you need somewhere to bunker down. That's a refuge. But a tower is good when it's that season again where the enemy always launches their attack and so you need to pull up the bridge and secure the perimeter. A refuge and a tower both accomplish the same function of protection, but we orient to them differently based upon our situation. And God is both of these for us. We can go to God as our refuge and we we can go to God as our tower. And I think these are helpful categories when it comes to prayer. Think about it like this. God is your refuge means that throughout the day when something unexpected happens, whether it's an inconvenience or a catastrophe, whether it's a bother or a burden, whether it's trouble or tragedy, when there's any kind of unseen storm suddenly upon you, cry out to God. Take cover in God. Run to God. Hide in God. Oh, God, be my refuge. That's refuge. We pray that way. But God is your tower, on the other hand, fits with the normal, intentional means of grace that you avail yourself to every day. You wake up in the morning and you open your Bible and you read because you want to hear from God. You gather with the church on Sundays to worship Jesus and receive the Lord's table. You pray the way Jesus taught us to pray. Lead me not into temptation, Father. Lead me not into temptation. Rescue me from the evil one. And you know what you're doing when you pray that? When we pray that way, we are securing the perimeter. We are inspecting the foundation. We are taking our rest in the tower. God is a refuge and a tower for us. And we need him to be both. And so we should go to him as both for the whole pie all the time. This is how we're moving from distance to devotion, from painful distance from God to pervasive devotion to God. There are three steps in this movement. First, desire change. 
Second, remember that God is for you. That's verses one and two, and then verses two and three. And then finally, the third step is hope in the Messiah. Hope in the Messiah. And I want you to look at this. By verse four, when it comes to this movement, by verse four, we have already basically arrived. Notice the petition in verse four has changed from lead me there to let me stay. In God, David has found the place he does not want to leave. With God is where he wants to dwell. And here the condition of refuge is beneath the shadow, the shelter of God's wings. And the idea there is nearness. David is now close to God. And and already, this is by verse four. In verse five, David is just highlighting the covenant relationship that he has with God. God has heard his vows. God knows David's heart. He knows David's surrender. And he has given David, God has given David the heritage or possession of those who fear God's name. Now, what is that? Well, it's God himself. God himself is his people's chosen portion and cup. He holds our lot. The lines have fallen for us in pleasant places. Indeed, we have a beautiful inheritance, heritage. David is there. By verse four, David is there and David is satisfied. He's in God's presence. He's close to God. He doesn't need anything else. Verse eight summarizes where he's at. He says, so will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. This is life before the face of God. It's constant praise to God. It's prevailing faith and obedience for God's glory. This is pervasive devotion. And in this psalm, we get there by verse 4. Verse 8 is basically a summary, which means we have to ask, what do we do about verses 6 and 7? You may have noticed that verses 6 and 7 don't seem to fit the flow of the psalm. In verse 6, almost out of nowhere, David goes from acknowledging acknowledging his nearness to God in verse 5 to in verse 6, he's talking about the king. Look at verse 6. Out of nowhere, he says, suddenly, prolong the life of the king. And right away, we wonder, who's he talking about here? Is he talking about himself in the third person? Because that's possible. He could do that. But then... What David says next answers our question. Look what he says in verse 6. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. Okay, so this is the king whose years endure to all generations. This is the king who is enthroned forever before God. And so no is the answer. No, David is not talking about himself, but he's talking about the future king that God has promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is the king who would come from David's lineage of whom God said, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. David is, here in this psalm, David is recalling that promise and he is speaking here about the Messiah. Here in verse 6, almost suddenly, 
David looks to the Messiah. Now, why does he do that? Why does he just pop up here almost out of nowhere, it seems? Well, let's take a minute and back up and think about the purpose of the book of Psalms overall in the Old Testament. This goes way back to Psalm 1. The purpose of the Psalms overall is to tell us that there is a future for the house of David. There is still hope for the house of David because the house of David is still the hope. The Psalms are meant to tell us that God will fulfill his promise to David about sending the Messiah, which he said in 2 Samuel 7. And the reason that this hope just pops up here in verses six and seven, almost out of nowhere, is because this hope is what underlies everything in the book of Psalms. It's all, it, this hope is always just beneath the surface of every single psalm. Imagine that when you read the psalms, imagine that every time you read a statement of trust and faith in God, every time you read a statement of trust and faith, just below that, just below the surface is the confidence that God will indeed do what He said and send the Messiah. And sometimes, like here in verses 6 and 7 of Psalm 61, it pops up. It becomes super clear what David is thinking. David's hope here in moving from distance to devotion, David's hope here of this movement is Messiah-centered, and he wants us to know that. David was at the end of the earth, it seemed. He was way out there in the fog, and now, now he finds himself in God's presence, near to God, and he wants to stay there. Now, how is that possible for David? What, what in God makes sense of David being able to move like that? The answer is that it's the heart of God expressed in his messianic promise. It's that God in his utter freedom, only because of his grace, he determined to send a redeemer to save us. And that redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the only way that we can be with God. Make no mistake about it in Psalm 61. There is nothing generic about the movement happening in this psalm. Nothing generic. The focal point of this journey is Jesus. The only way ultimately that we, any of us, can be in the presence of God is Jesus Christ. And in Psalm 61, Jesus is David's hope. And he's our hope. If you find yourself at a distance from God, if you feel far away, if you are in the fog, take heart. God has sent a Savior for you. Look to Jesus. Yes, desire change. Yes, remember that God is for you. But the place that you never leave is hoping in Jesus. Look to Him hope in Him, because when you hope in Jesus, there's nothing left to do. There's, there's nowhere else to go. The searching is over in Christ. The distance has been bridged, so we can rest in Him, see Jesus as the focal point of every blessing from God that you receive. All of the Father's favor toward you is realized in Jesus. 
His promised Messiah, his only begotten son, and therefore Jesus, Jesus is worthy of all of our worship and all of our devotion, all of our praying, all of our going to God as a refuge and a tower, all of it is through Jesus Christ. And so church, let us praise him. Let us adore Jesus. Let us give Jesus his glory. He deserves it. And that's what brings us down to this table. Because at this table, the bread represents the body of Jesus and the cup represents the blood of Jesus. And when we gather like this, Jesus has told us that we take the bread and we eat it, we take the cup and we drink it, and we do it in remembrance of him. So just so you know, what we're about to do, we do because Jesus told us to do it. He told us to do it. And so we come to this table and we receive this bread and this cup, remembering his death for us, giving Jesus thanks. And together at this table, when we come together to this table, we are renewing our hope in Jesus. We're hoping in Him. And so this morning, if you would do that, if you're here and you trust in Jesus, if you believe in Jesus, and if He is the supreme object of your worship and devotion, we invite you, come and eat and drink with us. Let us hope in the Lord Jesus Christ.